everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 52. My name is Michael Bradley, and joining me is my co-host, Jack McGee. Hello, everybody. I'm also the Golden Age Michael Bradley. The Golden Age Michael Bradley. There you go. Uh, actually, it's Charlie Niemeyer. I was trying to make a reboot joke, but Charlie didn't take the bait, so well, good Charlie on him. I didn't understand the, go- the, the goat. <laughs> I didn't understand the joke, so I apologize. Surprisingly enough, I hear that a lot. People don't understand my <laughs> jokes, so you're not the first. Um, this episode, we are taking another small break from our chronological chronicle of Superman. Charlie and I decided that before we wrap up the year, it would be a good idea to go back and give a deeper look at the audition recordings for the Superman radio serial. We are recording this a little bit before Christmas, but I hope everyone had a Merry Christmas, and hopefully you were able to spend it with family or friends or both. Uh, what are your plans for Christmas, Charlie? Uh, we've got the, my father-in-law and possibly his wife uh, coming to visit us for the holiday. Cool. It'll just be the four of us for the most part. So you'll be spending Christmas Day just at the house? and Well, there's going to be church in the morning, but other than that, pretty much, yeah. Okay, right. Um, before I forget, I also want to mention that Charlie was nice enough to invite me on for an episode of Superman in the Bronze Age. I was on episode 37, which I think will still be the most recent episode when you hear this. Mm-hmm. But on that episode, we discussed books with a February 1973 cover date, including Superman number 261 and Action Comics number 421. That was a lot of fun, so thank you again for coming on that. Yes. Uh, it probably – you said this is the 27th. It's, it won't be the most recent. Oh, okay. I'm, we're putting out a special Christmas one. Oh, okay. It will be the second most recent episode then. There you go. Uh, but if you don't listen to Superman of the Bronze Age, which you really should, but if you, you don't listen – You shall all die. No, I'm just kidding. But if you don't listen or don't listen regularly, be sure to grab that episode because we had a, a really good time. And plus it's got me, which is awesome. Everyone loves little Michael. Everyone loves me. Yay. Hey, everybody. My name is Michael Bailey, and this is the trailer with a truly epic ending to my new show about Batman, appropriately titled Bailey's Batman Podcast. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a weekly program that looks at a month in the life of the Dark Knight Detective, starting with the books bearing a March 1983 cover date, which is where my solid run of the characters' comics begins, and moving forward until, well, at least until the books that came out in 2005, because that's where the solid run ends. Each week, I will give you a full synopsis and review of every major ongoing Batman title, with brief stops along the way to look at the important specials, mini-series, one-shots, and Elseworld stories just to keep things interesting. I'll also be telling you what other books Batman appeared in that month, as well as what was going on elsewhere in the DCU. It is going to be all Batman all the time as I look at over 20 years of the character's history. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the epic ending to this trailer. You ready? The first appearance of Jason Todd. Death in the Family. Nightfall. Epic. No Man's Land. Do you have chills yet? All of that and more will be covered on Bailey's Batman Podcast. Every Tuesday, 
at baileysbatmanpodcast.com. This episode, we're going to be looking at the Superman radio serial audition recordings, or prototype or pilot recordings might actually be a better name for them. I talked about these somewhat back in episode 32, as well as in episode 39. These recordings were put together by Alan Duchovny and Bob Maxwell when they were first developing the show in order to try and sell it to a sponsor. These were put together in 1939, I believe likely very late in the year. And I outlined my thought process on that back in episode 32, if you're interested. The cast for these episodes is largely the same as what we've seen in the episodes we've covered to this point, including Bud Collier as Superman and Clark Kent, Ned Weaver as Jor-El, Agnes Moorhead as Lara, and Julian Noah as the newspaper editor, as well as several other familiar voices. Lois, however... I mentioned in a previous episode that I believed she was voiced by Frances Cheney. I, I tried to find my source on that to double-check before recording this episode, but as luck would have it, I am completely blanking on where I got that bit of information. Um, I suppose it could be Raleigh Bester or even another actress entirely. It doesn't sound like Raleigh Bester to me. What about you, Charlie? Uh, was Raleigh... Raleigh was the first actress that played okay. Lois. It sounded to me like whoever played Mrs. Uh, Miss Smith in the f- like that second episode on the uh, re- on the actual released episode. Okay, I think that was Agnes Moorhead, I believe. Okay, so it it, it, it could it, be her since she was the only other female actress there. Didn't really sound that different, but then again, I didn't actually go back to the first one and or the yeah the second episode and double check again. But anyway, that's actually a nice segue into talking about the episodes themselves. There are four recordings in all. The first two are pretty much exactly like the first two episodes of the actual show. The first is set entirely on Krypton. We meet Jor-El and Lara, and we learn the planet is being drawn into the sun. Soon, the earthquakes the planet has been experiencing grow worse, and the planet explodes mere moments after Jor-El and Lara's son, Kal-El, is placed in a ship and rocketed away from Krypton and towards Earth. In the second, the baby has reached Earth and grown to manhood and now calls himself Superman. He soon adopts the name Clark Kent and applies for a job as a reporter at a newspaper. He's initially turned down by the managing editor, White, but promises to bring back a story on some breaking news about sabotage trains and heads out to cover the story. So, for all intents and purposes, they are just the same as the first two episodes of the show. There are a few minor dialogue changes, but I'd say with one or two exceptions, those are probably just the result of the actors doing a little ad-libbing rather than sticking, you know, verbatim with the script. And most of the other changes are just superficial, uh, like the Instead of the wolf as the villain, we have a man named McCray. And the train is called the Flying Ute rather than the Silver Clipper. Huh. I totally missed the Flying Ute, but it makes me think of uh, my cousin Finney. Is it possible to two Utes... Uh, uh, to what? Uh, uh, what was that word? Uh, what word? To what? What? Uh, did you say Utes? Yeah, two Utes. What is a Ute? Oh, excuse me, Your Honor. Two youths. <laughs> right. The two youths. The two youths. 
Sorry, uh, keep going. I, I just re-listened to that episode. Uh, I think it was episode eight or nine of the show where I uh, worked that clip in. It, it was the uh, episode eight because it was the Tenement story from Action mm-hmm. Comics number eight. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's neither <laughs> here nor there. Uh, but the last change worth mentioning is that White's secretary, rather than being Miss Smith, as it was in the actual second episode, is none other than Lois Lane. She serves the same function as Miss Smith, and the dialogue is basically the same. If I were backed into a corner and forced to make a guess, I would say that the only reason they used Lois in that role is to get her into these pilots, since she was a fairly big part of the comics and newspapers. But that's only a guess on my part, and I could be completely off base, but we'll likely never know for sure one way or the other, so... Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. Um, The sound effects in these episodes, especially the flying effects, are far less refined, Uh, but as we've kind of talked about, they were still working on that even once the show started itself, but it, it was particularly annoying in these episodes that we're about to talk about, though. It's just a very... Uh, the flying effect was a very shrill noise, and there yeah. are some pretty extended flying sequences that make it almost oh, painful yeah. to listen to at times. Especially in that fourth episode. Right. Yeah. Wow. Did you have any more comments on the first two auditions? Uh, let's see. Oh, okay. Um, obviously, they had they were doing it like they normally do, and the radio show came up with, for the most part, the look up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. Uh-huh. Uh, but in... These auditions, it was a giant bird. Right. Which I thought was Which makes a little more sense if you think about it. Well, yeah, because he's but, huge. But, of course, if you're going to think it's a plane... Yeah, you might as well think it's a pterodactyl, too. Cause, right. A uh, plane yeah. or a bird isn't going to... Yeah, whatever. Um, and other than that, uh, I thought it was interesting. I don't remember this from the pilot or from the one we've actually covered before, but it might have been there, that Clark wrote a letter to the paper, I guess, asking for a job. When Lois went in there and said that the young man was waiting out in the office or whatever, uh, uh, what's his name? White. Uh, actually says, uh, who, what young man? And she says, Clark Kent. He's like, oh, the boy that wrote the letter. Yeah, I don't remember that from the actual episode either. I don't remember that from the episode. I don't know what the letter would be other than asking for seeing if there's an open position. Or Yeah, probably, you know, like you do a send your resume and cover letter it could have been that kind of yeah deal but that's uh, so I noticed that um, the other thing which actually goes into the other two episodes but I'll go ahead and point it out here um, Collier didn't do as much differentiation on the Clark and Superman voices no he didn't uh, he wasn't as forceful with it as Superman but it was still the deeper voice both times right and uh, yeah I had a note about that in my notes for the second two episodes too which actually made it sound a little more raw to me because obviously he didn't because by the time they actually did the eventual recordings he had the voice changed down yes but it just made these sound a little more raw which makes sense since they're audition episodes but it made it seem a little more raw and um you mentioned uh, you mentioned it back when we first started these and i had forgotten so i looked it up but uh again they mentioned floyd gibbons uh as apparently Perry was trying to compare Clark to Floyd Gibbons, who was a war, a war correspondent for the Chicago Tribune during World War One, right, and was also one of the first radio news reporters and commentators. And like you said, he must have died pretty recently because uh, by the time they did these, because otherwise they probably wouldn't. His name probably wouldn't have been that 
big yet. Yeah, it just seems like a. It seems to me like it'd be a weird reference um, if these were recorded, say, in June, because he passed away in late fall of 1939. So if these were recorded before he died, it it just seems like a weird reference. Why they would pull out that particular name? Yeah, unless he was still really well known, like Johnny Carson was. Yeah, that could be too. Yeah, of course. That's Johnny Carson, and <laughs> I don't know. I had never heard of Floyd Gibbons before we started this, but then again, I wasn't around between World War One and Two, so right, right, <laughs> yeah, hard to tell. into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon, the mole man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now, mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next Victim. You athletes can't change the way I can. Gotta be dying to those powerful cousins. I've been expecting you, for I am the thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the Phantom is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatots, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak. Blind or hope. Stop! You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain until it has been drained of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantastic Forecast. ffcast.libsyn.com Now, the third and fourth recordings actually pick up with a brand new storyline rather than continuing the one started in the first two. 
I have no idea why they did this unless it was just to showcase the different kinds of stories they could tell. Or they could have just taken the position that producing two partial storylines rather than one full one would be better because it would leave the prospective buyers wanting more, hopefully. Mm-hmm. If that was the case, it apparently didn't work out too well, though, since they never really found a sponsor for it. But in... <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing, though. I am hungry for a bowl of some Blancos. Blancos. I just had Blancos for breakfast this morning. It's the breakfast of Superman. Right. <laughs> In any event, since these are new, we're going to go over them just like normal, and uh, Charlie's going to take one episode, I'm going to take the other just like we normally do, and I've actually got the first one. So we begin in the office of Paris White, managing managing editor for the New York Daily Flash, who is talking with reporter Clark Kent, secretly Superman. Five days ago, another reporter, Bob Grayson, had been sent to cover an assignment and was to report in every day. He called two days prior and told Paris that he would have a sensational scoop any minute. The call was strangely cut off, and Grayson hadn't been heard from since. White assigns Clark to go to Newport News to get news of... News from Newport News. There we go. Uh, Of what's going on and try to find Grayson. (laughs) White is secretive about how he knows, but he tells Clark that the U.S.'s newest submarine, the Y-Boat, is set to be launched but that a mysterious figure known as the Shark has threatened that it will never happen. White then relates a story told to him a few days prior by Grayson. Apparently, Richardson was aboard the boat talking with the watchman. They think they hear a noise and realize that someone else is aboard the boat that shouldn't be. They prepare to sneak up on the person, but are jumped by the shark and knocked unconscious. Later, the watchman has revived to find Richardson gone. White tells Clark to go to Newport News and find out what's going on with Grayson... Richardson and the shark, and soon we find Superman soaring through the air on his way. Arriving soon at the Navy Yard, Superman dives underwater and listens inside the Y-boat where the shark is working along with his assistant Fritz. We learn that Fritz was the night watchman and had worked with the shark to cover Richardson's disappearance. Richardson had been had since been tied up and held prisoner in a nearby cave and left to drown when the tide comes in. Hearing noises outside and knowing that time is short, they resume their work. Superman then leaps into the air and begins searching for the cave, soon locating it it and Richardson. Grabbing the commander, he pulls him safely to the beach, narrowly missing the rising tide. Richardson tells Superman the sub is to launch in just 15 minutes, and Superman leaps up, up, and away, pouring on the speed, hoping to get back to Newport News in time. All right, and in the second episode, which I need to scroll to get to the notes. There we go. Superman and the Commander are flying to the submarine base at about 1,000 miles an hour. Basically, we get the Commander freaking out because of the fact that Superman is flying, but he is eventually able to put aside his fears in order to stop the shark from destroying the Y-boat. When they get near the base, Superman dives, but the speed is suffocating to the Commander, so after Superman has him turn his head in a different direction, he has the commander direct him, uh, direct him to the Y-boat. It is only partially in the water, and the commander tells Superman that the shark was supposed to be in the battery room until the last minute. Learning that there is a way into no, learning that there is a way that they can sneak in through a part of the boat that is under the water, Superman and the commander dive. Meanwhile, inside the Y-boat, the shark and Fritz are finalizing the setup of the atom bomb. Shark reveals that once they are finished, they will not be sticking around to watch the explosion, since it will be big enough to destroy the Y-boat, the dock, and the submarine base. Their plan is to escape by car and then by plane. 
But by this point, the shark believes that the commander should be dead since the tide should be high enough to have drowned him by now. We also learn that the bomb has been set so that it won't go off until the champagne bottle strikes the boat during the christening. So the two of them then run out. At about this time, Superman and the commander break through the observation window and set the bulkheads to stop the water flow. Then they head to the battery room where Superman busts through the door with sound effects that sounds like he's twinkling on a xylophone. With only one minute left, Superman leaves the commander to search for the correct wire to cut to stop the bomb while he runs off to, fl- to try one last-ditch effort. Meanwhile, outside, Miss Nichols and the Admiral are, set, are getting set for the christening. As he gives her the bottle, she swears that she sees the boat move, but the Admiral just laughs it off as impossible because no one should be inside. So she races up the bottle and is about to swing it down when something happens. On the road that allows them to see, no, on a road that allows them to see the festivities, the shark witnesses what is happening and shouts at Fritz. Back at the dock, there is utter confusion, and inside the Y boat, the commander still can't find that wire. What has Superman done? For the next installment of this thrilling new radio serial, tune in again tomorrow, same time, same station. And in the meantime, here's a final word. If you enjoy hearing about Superman. Don't forget that you can follow his adventures each month in the pages of that exciting comic book, Action Comics, on sale at your local newsstand. Remember, tomorrow, same time, same station, and the makers of the episode ends. will again bring dun, dun, dun. You... Oh. I hate cliffhangers when you don't have the rest of it. Dang it. <laughs> the third recording here has been given the title, The Shark, Part 1. And my first note was, it sounds like Julian Noah as Commander Richards and Ned Weaver as the shark. Do you agree? That's about right. I would go with that. Ned Weaver, of course, was the wolf in the first uh, actual storyline from the from the actual. That's a lot of actuals, isn't it? He was, <laughs> Actually, yes. <laughs> he was the, he was the uh, the wolf in the first storyline from the actual show. And some of the he's got some of the same kind of vocal inflection, so it made me believe it was. Uh, but here we have Clark working for the New York Daily Flash under Paris White, his first name being given here for the first time. The name of the newspaper that Clark works for was in a bit of a state of flux when these were produced. The name Daily Planet first appeared in the newspaper Daily from November 13, 1939, and the Sunday strip from December 5th. And then it was then brought into the comic books with Superman number 4, which was released around February 15, 1940, just three days after the debut of the series. So, again, I don't know why they would use Daily Flash here unless it was already, unless that change from the Daily Start of the Daily Planet was already in the works for the newspaper and they just weren't sure, or I don't it's just very confusing to me. But Maybe it was going to be the Daily Flash before they went with Planet. Yeah, that could be too. No idea. Yeah, I think I actually mentioned that back in a previous episode, and I speculated. I wondered if Flash Comics, which had oh, recently yeah. debuted, had anything to do with the second change, if that, that was the case. Correct. Yes, you're right. Um, I noticed, though, if you start off the, at the beginning of the episode, they spend a good five minutes just telling you how awesome Superman is. Yeah. And I, and I, I thought that was kind of cool because, you know, you don't hear that too much anymore, but – Wow. I was like, all right, this is, yeah. 
let's just get on with the show, with the story. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I kind of had a similar note that they seem to be very carefully spelling things out, like how Superman came from Krypton and how Clark is secretly Superman, and they've done it in other episodes too. But here they're just very carefully explaining how you know he's secretly Superman and how the suit hides his powerful muscles and and how he acts differently. There's Krypton. Right, right, right. They're they're so precise with it to the point where the, it actually feels like they're writing down to the audience, and I'm not sure if they, I'm not sure if it's because these are sample episodes and they just wanted to make sure everything was very well explained, or if they actually intentionally changed the writing style. Mm. But they do say Clark is wearing a blue suit here, which I got a kick out of. Yeah, that's weird because I guess he does in the show or in the comics, doesn't he? It's usually blue. Yeah. Oh yeah. I also noticed though that they also, um, and I don't remember ever hearing this before, but they actually had an ad for the Superman of America. Yes. So I thought that was actually kind of cool. And again, I don't know why they don't plug that on the actual show. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I was kind of wondering uh, that too, but because it was still obviously going pretty strong in the early forties. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 When per- uh, Perry Paris is talking to Clark, he asks him if he's married. Which seemed kind of random. I mean, yes, he's sending him off on a dangerous assignment, but yeah, I would thought I had a, another a similar note. Shouldn't if Clark's working at the paper, shouldn't Paris already know that he's not married? Well, you'd think so. I mean, because usually it's one of those notable things. Now, I don't know. I know it hasn't always been this way, but I don't know how common it was for guys to wear wedding rings back then. But obviously, he wouldn't be wearing one, and a good reporter would see that. Well, you would think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Paris basically tells him, I hope you don't die. Yeah, I like that too. It's like, Gosh. well, Grayson died. So what I want you to do is go there. Right. And, uh, you know, I really hope you don't die though because otherwise i got to find another reporter to send in and it's just going to be a pain. And i got this lowest girl that keeps yelling, yelling at, at me. the window. Right, yeah. It's crazy stuff. Pain in the butt. Uh, but the last note I had was that the villain here is called the Shark, um, and the villain from the earliest episodes becomes the 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 man called McRae from the, the first two auditions becomes the Wolf in the actual episodes. So I guess that means they maybe they thought the uh, animal nicknames were menacing for villains, or I... yeah, well, there's at least they're menacing animals too. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's not like, like the Aardvark. I am the puppy. Yeah. <laughs> I am the aardvark. This is the honey badger. Watch it run in slow motion. It's pretty badass. Look, it runs all over the place. Whoa, watch out, says that bird. Ew, it's got a snake. Oh, it's chasing a jackal. Oh my gosh. Oh, the honey badgers are just crazy. The honey badger has been referred to by the Guinness Book of World Records as the most fearless yeah. animal. I, I noticed that too. I don't know why I didn't notice it though. And our fourth audition recording is The Shark, Part 2. And I believe Charlie has a first note on this one. Yeah, um, I don't know if it's because they were leaving space for some of the ads. Because there is a spot where they have actual silence to, so they could you know, edit in an ad. But um, at the beginning it says, and if you too would be a Superman. Right. Yeah, it and could be. And then it be. just kind of cuts away to the story. It's like... Because before they actually left room, like this whole like maybe ten seconds of just dead air mm-hmm. to cut in a commercial, 
and this time it was just and I think they did it on the first one too uh, the shark the first part of the shark story and it just says if you if you too would be a Superman we start our story with the with Superman and the commander flying right. and it's like wait what <laughs> but you didn't finish your thought <laughs> yeah it, it could just be that they were just you know trying to give a general idea of, of how it would go and didn't feel the need to do it possibly full out every I, I don't but yeah it is kind of weird uh but speaking of weird, we, we get into the actual story, and Superman claims he is going thousands of miles per hour. That's pretty fast. Thousands I'm, of miles per hour. A thousand. I'm still pretty sure that would still? kind of skin off the human. <laughs> yes. I, you think so. But maybe he's wrapped in the cape? I don't know. But I like how um, Richardson is, is freaking out while they're flying, but Superman is... Uh, I put comforting him in my nose, but it's not really comforting. He's just trying to calm him down somewhat. Um, <laughs> so it's like, oh, you'll be all right. <laughs> right. <laughs> if, you, if I drop you, I'll catch you. Yeah. yeah. But, um, that was nice, too. I was like, well, that's nice of you, Superman. Have we seen Superman fly with anyone in the radio show other than unconscious people or the, the, the villain of the story? Uh, yes, the cab driver from the last one we did. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay. The, the cab driver that they forgot about. Yes. yes. And that you thought died, but right. actually hadn't. But yeah, uh, other than him, this would be – this is the only one that has been uh, – had – well, had such an important part of the story. But also, you know, this Superman was a lot more open with him yes. than he is with anyone else on any of the other shows. But then yeah, he again, makes he, is, he makes no attempt at all to, to hide his Superman feats in this story. Well, other than the fact that he tries to sneak into the boat underwater instead of just landing in front. But then again, I guess you know with security, right. they would have a hard time getting to the boat if they just did that. Right. Um. For one, I did like the realism of showing the commander suffocating during the flight. Yeah. Too often, I feel because, um. Obviously, that high up, the air's thinner, especially when you're rushing at a thousand miles an hour. Right. But um, too often they kind of ignore that fact with people when Superman's carrying people. Uh, whether it's the comics, some of the movies, see Superman four, and um, it was kind of cool to actually show the realism. I don't know if turning your head in a different direction would actually help you catch your breath, but. I haven't been flying that high at that kind of a speed to test it, so I don't know. Right. Uh, but I also liked the fact that the commander, who was freaking out the whole time he's yes. in his arms, uh, suddenly realizes that they need to get to the Y boat as quickly as possible and basically kind of puts aside his fear to go save the day. Yes. And I thought that was pretty cool, especially since while I was finishing up these notes, I had the Army-Navy game on TV – <laughs> so it all fit. <laughs> um, but, but that was really cool. But we actually get to the white boat, and the shark and Fritz are building an atom bomb in the hold of a ship. And then they just plan to, to just fly away and, and somehow not die from this nuclear explosion. Which, yeah, that was – I would have thought that the they were saying it's just going to take out the boat, the dock, and maybe the base. But an atom bomb would probably take out yeah. a good portion of Newport News. Yes. Oh, yeah. And, you know, leave a you, big you just can't drive up to a nearby cliff and watch and, and yeah. Right. 
it's like hello but this, but is, this is the 10 years before or five years before an atom bomb actually was dropped i think yeah and you know duck and cover and all that stuff so oh yeah hide under your desk so well yeah um, of course that will save the day. you're not gonna get any radiation if you're under the metal desk well right right Just, what was that what was that guy's name um Bert oh, the turtle one? Bert the turtle was that uh, it? i have from, no idea from the duck and cover film i think it was Bert the turtle anyway oh, i i never watched those um but um that's all i had for this one it was just really light on story. Um, well, before I think... we... go ahead. Uh, before we finish, though, um, I did like the fact that with that Miss Nichols. Uh huh. Granted, it was right at the end of the story, and with her, I might have believed it a little more just because it's she seemed like it's just they were trying to get a pretty girl to christen the boat. Right. But she's like the most normally portrayed woman we've ever seen seen on the show so far. She screams about the boat moving, but isn't an overacted scream. It's just something you would expect to hear if you're standing there and the boat moves, you know? <laughs> um, so I, I like the portrayal there, and it's just ironic that the one character that they've had that actually could act that way, because you would almost expect her to overact. The, <laughs> they, don't, they don't do it. All right. They don't do her. Uh, but Lois is supposed to be tough. Uh, she squeals at everything, so I don't know. But that's really all I had on on these. I mean, it was kind of light on story, but and, and because it didn't end, you know, it's it's hard to judge it as a complete story. Yes. Because it's it's not a complete story, but still, it's interesting to hear these and and see the show being relatively unchanged from its original conception, which again I think speaks to how strong a footing they got off on right from the start. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing that annoyed me though is I thought the shark two-parter was actually just a two-part story. Oh, so yeah. when I got to the end and they're saying like something's happening, but they don't say what it is, I'm like, what? What's happening? What's happening? Then it says, find out tomorrow, and I'm like, no, Second, you're not going to do this to me. It's a two, it's it's ah, uh, it's an audition. They don't do any more episodes. What happens? To <laughs> the world will never know. And obviously, George Lucas must have listened to this because he got the idea for the Y wing from the Y boat. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. According to Michael J. Hayes' Flights of Fantasy, the reason this storyline or, or these two episodes weren't reused at the beginning of the radio show was that networks were wary of them because of their focus on espionage and the sophisticated weaponry. Uh, Ooh, we gotta, that makes sense. We got to remember this was 1939, so the U.S. was still officially neutral concerning the war that was brewing overseas. Uh, now that attitude towards you know the war and, and spying and stuff is going to change considerably after the attack on Pearl Harbor, and elements of this storyline are picked up before then. Uh, there's a storyline down the road called the Grayson Submarine that we'll be getting to probably next year that incorporates some of the same elements that were in these two episodes. Just from the, yeah, just from the title, it sounds like it would. Well, yeah, yeah. But these audition recordings have never been released that I know of, but they are available several places online. Um, if you can't find them, drop me an email and I will uh, direct it to the right place. And the sound on these things is not what you would call amazing. It's kind of interesting. Right. But uh, especially, I noticed that this one and um, the other episodes we're getting ready to cover now that we've gotten away from the episodes that were on the CDs. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a little. It, it almost sounds like everyone's got a cold. <laughs> it's like everyone drops an octave. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Bad Girl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Bad Girl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Bad Girl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Bad Girl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different, a date which will live in infamy, a world at war, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Well, that's it, everybody. 52 episodes and uh, a full year of shows under our belts and, and pretty much two full years of Superman's adventures. Charlie, I want to thank you for coming on again, uh, not, not just for this episode, but it's been great having you on for the radio show and I'm pretty excited because I think we've barely scratched the surface on them and there's just so much cool stuff coming up starting with the next time you're here actually Ah, yes I can't wait and thank you again for having me and congratulations on making it through your first year thank you and actually even though you had to play catch up a little bit Hmm. actually getting 52 shows done in a year that's pretty amazing Uh, the plan is for Charlie to be back in episode 54 until then though why don't you let them know where they can find your stuff (laughs) <laughs> well, that's a loaded question, but let them know where you. 
<laughs> wow, that's kind of uh, private there, Mike. <laughs> uh, but no, online I am at Superman Bronze Superman in the Bronze Age blogspot.com where I host a bi-weekly show with uh, some guy, uh, J. David Weeder. Sorry. Um, and Did we you forget covered... his name? <laughs> uh, I had the Weeder, but I couldn't think of it. There's a letter there. I can't. Anyway, Jeremiah. His first yeah. name's Jeremiah. Oh, <laughs> well, he was a bullfrog. And he was a good friend of mine. Anyway, <laughs> I'm totally lost. What was I doing? Oh, yeah. I do a show called Superman in the Bronze Age, which I co host with J. David Weeder, which is at Superman in the Bronze Age. Blogspot.com, as well as Superbronze1970.libson.com, where we cover Superman's adventures from the end of Mort Weisinger's uh, editorial run to the end of Julie Schwartz's editorial run. And then, in addition to that, um, the show is also posted uh, along with yours at supermanhomepage.com and the supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And then I'm here every once in a while to talk about the radio. Cool. As for this show, like I said, Charlie will be back in episode 54. But next time, we'll be resuming our regular chronological coverage by looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 25, which is actually an interesting story to kick off the year with, so don't miss it. Be sure to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes and back episodes of the show. The site will also give you links to the show's Facebook and Twitter pages, as well as the email link, which is thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so via iTunes or the RSS feed, and links for both of those are at the site as well. Don't forget to stop by the Superman homepage, as well as the Superman Podcast Network, Items are posted at both sites whenever I have new episodes, and there's all sorts of other Superman-related awesomeness for your eyes, ears, and whatever other senses you have. And just as a reminder, if uh, I've also got another podcast, Green Lantern's Light, which I co-host with J. David Weeder and Jeffrey Taylor. See, I remember both of their names. Wow. Show Our third monthly episode is out now, so be sure to check it out. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. I hope everyone has a safe and enjoyable New Year's, and we'll talk to you later. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody.
what we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you. Sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. This is an official civil defense film produced in cooperation with the Federal Civil Defense Administration and in consultation with the Safety Commission of the National Education Association. Produced by Archer Productions, Incorporated. Hey, Bert, come on out and meet all these nice people, please. Oh, all right. We really can't blame you. You see, Bert is a very, very careful fellow. When there's danger, this is the way he keeps from being hurt. Sometimes it even saves his life. That's why these children are practicing to duck and cover, just as you do in your school. We all know the atomic bomb is very dangerous. Since it may be used against us, we must get ready for it just as we are ready for many other dangers that are around us all the time. Man, that only went 45 minutes. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, I guess when you don't have to do a synopsis for the first two episodes, we go right through it, don't we? Yeah.